0: Thank you, Colleen. At this point, I invite the kids to go ahead and head out to Children's Church. I believe that Beth is waiting for you there. And for the rest of us, uh, turn back with me in your Bibles to the book of Job. Uh, We took a, a a a brief one week off from the book of Job uh, to look at the book of Titus we're going to be back in the story of Job this morning and so if you have your Bibles turn with me to the book of Job chapter 2 is where we're going to be towards the tail end of chapter 2 and so if you don't have your Bibles uh, the text will be on the screen if you do have your Bibles the book of Job is right before the book of Psalms towards the middle portion of your text and so Job chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Job chapter 2. The uh, sermon title this morning is Job part 4. This is uh, week 4 of Job, even though it's been somewhat exp- expanded, and uh, we will be in part four of Job, Job's wife and Job's friends. And this morning we're going to, I think, maybe focus on a section of scripture that is oftentimes overlooked, and I think we have some good lessons, uh, some good things that I think God wants to show us this morning, uh, from the example of Job's wife, and the example of Job himself, and the example of Job's friends. And so we will be uh, starting in verse seven of chapter two is where we're going to be. Before we jump into the text, what I'd like to do is just give a quick review as to the story of Job. It's been several weeks since we've started the story of Job, and so I want to uh, just catch you up, refresh our minds and our memories as to where we are. Uh, the book of Job began in chapter 1, as most uh, books of the Bible do, and the story begins with a portrait of a godly man. Uh, the story of Job begins with the character of Job, and in verses 1 through 5 of Job, we see a, a, an artful, uh, skillful, skillful 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 artists paint a picture of Job as a godly, uh, man with high integrity and character, who is the epitome of God's blessing. If you remember, uh, way back when, uh, Job was the richest man in in the East. The text says, and so you could consider him to be um, the Bill Gates of of his era. He was extremely blessed, extremely wealthy. Uh, he had a ton of livestock. Uh, he had a successful business. We see that he was blessed not only in the financial realm, but he was blessed in the family. Realm. Uh, the text tells us that he had ten children, ten adult. Grown children, which is even more of a blessing, I think uh, his kids are away, and so they don 't have to change diapers and get up in the middle of the night uh, he 's a, a blessed man, ten adult children. not only that, but we see a picture of job as a man full of integrity he 's a successful businessman, he runs his business um, uh, p- with with purity and integrity. We see that he 's a godly husband. we see that he is a faithful father, caring about the spiritual nature of his children, and so job in the, the The very first portion of Job is the epitome of God's blessing. And we would anticipate nothing but further blessings from God. But as the story continues in chapter 1, we get something altogether um, extraordinary. We see uh, the hand of God allowing Satan, if you remember the story, Satan uh, is in amongst the angels in in the heavenly court. And Satan brings an accusation before God about Job. Do you remember what it was? Job's, uh, Satan's accusation against Job was, Job only serves you. He only worships you. He only loves you because of the things that you give him. Look at the hedge of protection that you have set around him. He is blessed beyond all belief. If you allow me to take those things away, what? He will curse you to your face. And God, in a very scary verse of the Bible, says, go ahead. You take away everything that, that he has, but you keep his health. And so, the very next day, Job awakes uh, like any other normal day, and in a rapid-fire succession of t- catastrophic news, he learns from three successive servants that he, in a split in a split second, has lost everything. He's lost his livestock. He has lost pretty much all of his servants. And he's lost his ten kids as Satan uh, uh, allowed, allowed the house that they were feasting in to implode. And in a moment, all of his possessions, all of his blessings, gone. And we see that Satan was wrong. Job worships God. He falls before God and he worships God and he said, The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, and so we think, oh, we breathe a little bit and We get a rest, but there is another meeting in the heavenly hosts and Satan once again comes and he says, well, sure, he worships you. He has his health. And to make a long story short, Satan once again accuses Job saying, if you touch his health skin for skin, right, everything a man has, he will give for his health. And so if you take his health, surely he will curse you to your face. And God once again gives Satan permission to strike Job with boils and illness and misery. And yet, Job still doesn't blame God. We see the text says that he did not sin against God with his lips. And as he interacted with his wife, as we'll see once again this morning, he says, Shall we not accept good from the hand of the Lord and not accept adversity? And he did not sin. Against God, And so this is where we find ourselves in the story of Job. Most of the time, if you read through the book of Job, or if you've heard it preached before, most of the time we move from the disaster and the catastrophe uh, and the testing of Job right into the dialogue. In chapter 3, Job has what I would call a monologue. It's a lament. He is lamenting um, all of the catastrophe that has come upon him. And then in chapter 4, you get about... 35 or so chapters worth of dialogue and it goes on and on and on and back and forth and it can get a little bit uh, lengthy. But most of the time we skip right by the section that we're going to take a look at this morning and that is the introduction of Job's friends. If you recall, three friends come to visit Job and to mourn and to comfort him. Most of the time, when we talk about Job's three friends, actually there are four that we learn later in the text, most of the time when we think of Job's friends, what do we normally think of? Bad, right? They're not good friends. They're not good counselors. They accuse him. And rightly so. They get, they get a bad rap, rightly so. But, but what we see here is that at the beginning, when they're first introduced, we see them put in a very positive Light. In fact, I think Job's three friends here are uh, a wonderful example of friendship. And so what I hope to do this morning is to pause before we get into the dialogue, before we get into the meat of this book. And I think we can learn some things from the players in this story. And so what we have this morning is we're going to have lessons. We're going to have lessons for wives from the example of Job's wife. We're going to take a look again at that interaction. Job uh, uh, receives the suggestion from his wife, and so we'll have a lesson for wives. Secondly, we'll have a lesson for husbands as Job responds to the ill-advised uh, counsel of his wife, and so lessons for wives, lessons for husbands, and then thirdly, uh, we'll see a couple lessons for friends. I think all of us in here would consider ourselves to be a friend to someone, hopefully, some ones, plural. We're going to have a couple lessons on friendship, in particular, being a faithful and good friend to someone who is hurting. And so let's do this. Let's read the text together. We're going to read uh, verse 7 through verse 13, and then we'll pick it apart. Verse 7 of chapter 2. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he was sitting in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all of this evil that had come upon him, they each came from his own place. Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and to comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and they wept and they tore their robes and they sprinkled dust on their head towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights and no one no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. So the first thing we're going to see, three lessons this morning. If you are a wife, or maybe a wife-to-be, um, this is for you. And so if you're taking notes, our first main point is a lesson for wives. Chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. Uh, what we see here is uh, is jo- Job's wife. Remember the story. Uh, Job is at the city dump, if you will. He is among the ashes, most likely amongst the garbage and the uh, refuse, if you will, of the city, and there are probably dogs all around, and it's a stinky, dirty place of outcasts and bums and those who have... Encountered hard times, like job has, and there, in that moment, he has left the household and he is sitting there, and his wife approaches him, and his wife approaches him, surely um, after thinking and, and going through all that they have gone through. And I imagine in my mind's eye that Job's wife, is, she just has to be at the end of, of her rope, you know. I mean, we think about it. She has gone through what Job has as well. She has lost all of her wealth, all of her status in the community as the leading lady, if you will. All of her ten children. She gave birth to these ch- ten children. And most likely, not only did she give birth to them, but she helped Job. Uh, probably bury them with her own hands and she has gone through just as much as Job has and she is at the end of her rope and she approaches her husband and she has a bit of ill-timed advice for her husband Again, verses 7 through 9. Let's read this together again. Verses 7 through 9. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sore of his foot to the crown of his head. Verse 8. And they took a, he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And here we go. Verse 9. His wife approaches. Then his wife said to him, and she opens her mouth in what I would consider maybe, maybe the most significant moment of their marriage. Maybe the most significant moment of their lives. And she approaches him with advice. She opens her mouth. Do you still hold fast your integrity? That is, do you still serve God? Do you still worship him? Do you still revere him? It's a leading question. She is insinuating that he should not. And then she gives her advice. Curse God and die. In her voice, the words that emanate from her mouth could be the voice of Satan himself because Satan told God you do these things and he will curse you to your face and his wife at this moment comes and says the exact same thing and so lesson number one First lesson, the only lesson here, and there are many lessons, but the, the lesson that I want for those of you who are wives um, to see is this. If, if you have a pen, if you have something to jot this down with, maybe in the corner of your Bible, write this down. A lesson for wives. In hard times, always guard your words and never suggest compromise. Something here that you should always do as wives and something here that you should never do in hard Times in difficult times, always guard your words, and never suggest compromise. I, I want to suggest to you that if there was a moment for Mrs. Job to rise up and to be a faithful and wise and winsome and compassionate and uh, a woman who is godly in her speech. This was her moment. You know, this was her moment. Job needed her to be a rock-solid wife in her actions and in her words. Of all moments that she needed to guard her words, and of all moments that he needed wise, encouraging advice, it was this moment. It was this moment. This was her moment. In my mind's eye, she should have said, Job... I know you're suffering. I know you can't stand it. I know we don't know what's going to happen next. I know you are confused. Just hold fast. Job, just hang in there. Hold fast. Be faithful to God. This was Mrs. Job's moment. And she failed to always Guard her words. I think what's true of Job in this moment is true of most of us who are men. I will speak for myself, not for the rest of you guys in the crowd, but I think it's probably true. When things are bad, when times are tough, when we are going through a prolonged period of Difficulty, whether that be at work or in our relationship with our kids or a co-worker or even with your spouse. When times are hard, when things are difficult for a long period of time, we tend to be vulnerable. We tend to not think as rightly as we should. I want to read an excerpt uh, from Chuck Swindoll. Notice what he says, I think, with great insight about men in this condition. He says this, In our weakened condition we lose our, our objectivity and our stability. Our discernment is skewed. Our determination lags. We become vulnerable and we don't know how to handle ourselves in such a vulnerable state. And he concludes by saying this, when we lose our way, you wives help us find our way back. And so wives, always Guard your words and never suggest compromise. So wives, how are you doing with this? Are you guarding your words well? When your husband in particular is going through something difficult, maybe he's uh, on the chopping block at work, maybe there is uncertainty. Maybe he doesn't know if he will have a job tomorrow. Are you guarding your words? Maybe he's been out of work for a while. Maybe times are tough. Things are getting stretched financially. Are you guarding your words? Words. Maybe he's having issues at work with a co-worker, with a boss. Maybe he's taking on extra work. Maybe he's working extra hours. Whatever that might be for your husband. Are you like Mrs. Job? Or are you not guarding your words? And I encourage you, guard your words well. Not only should you always guard your words, but there's a never. You should never suggest compromise. Notice what Mrs. Job does She doesn't guard her words and she suggests what is unthinkable. Curse God and die. She suggests to her husband that he compromised his integrity, that he forsake the God whom he loves, whom they had served together, presumably for many, many years. I am presuming here that Mrs. Job was faithful and, and all of the things that, that, um, that God saw and blessed for their family, that Mrs. Job was involved in that. And, and she encourages him to just just give it up, give it up, to turn away from serving the Lord and to compromise his integrity. I have to believe that her words here uh, in her mind was right. I have to believe that her intentions, uh, as far as she was concerned, were good. She had seen him suffer. She had seen him at the city dump. She had seen him mocked and scorned in the place that he was once imminent and high. I think that she saw this as assisted suicide. I think that's what she was thinking. I can't stand Job seeing you suffer like this any longer. If you, if you forsake your integrity, Job, if you curse God, Job, you know what's going to happen. You know, that God, you know that God might take you. You know that this disease will get you. Just do it. I think she had, in her mind's eye, good intentions, and yet she suggested that which was completely wrong completely wrong. And so, wives, always guard your words and never suggest compromise. So this means, ladies, for example, that when your husband has a boss and her, his boss is asking him to do things that he is uncomfortable with, when his boss is suggesting that he fudge the rules here, that he bend the law there, and that there will be benefits him doing that. Wives, in that moment that means you don't suggest that he listen. In that moment you don't suggest compromise. In that moment it means that you don't recommend him keep quiet on the job. When he's concerned he wants to share his faith. He's speaking about the gospel and about Jesus at work to his customers and to his co-workers and it's creating a ripple effect and there's uncertainty. In that moment that means that you don't suggest that he stop. When he is being slandered by his competitor, when the other business is speaking wrongly about him and his business and his coworkers, and he is very tempted and his coworkers want him to attack back and to slander the reputation of his competitor, what that means, wives, is that in that moment, you don't suggest that he compromise. There's a book by the name of Integrity, simply put, Integrity. Uh, The author is Ted Inkstrom, and he tells this story, and I want to share it with you. I think it's very pertinent to what we've seen of Job. In his book, Integrity, he says this, Ted says this, For Coach Cleveland Strahd and the Bulldogs of Rockdale County High School, that is in Georgia, it was their championship season. 21 wins and 5 losses on the way to the Georgia Boys State Tournament last March, and then a dramatic comfort behind victory in the state finals. But now the new glass trophy case outside of the high school gymnasium is bare. Earlier this month, the the Georgia High School Athletic Association deprived Rockdale County of its championship after school officials said that a player who was scholastically ineligible had played 45 seconds in the first of the school's five postseason games. The coach says this, We didn't know that he was ineligible at the time. We didn't know it until a few weeks ago. Some people have said that we should have just kept quiet about it all, that it was just 45 seconds and that the player didn't make a difference. He wasn't an impact player. And the coach goes on to say this, but but you've got to do what's honest and right and what the rules say. I told my team that people forget the scores of basketball games, but they don't ever forget what you're made of. And we will never forget what Job is made of, either. Because facing his wife's suggestion to compromise, he held tight, and he didn't. And we will not forget him for it. And so we've seen a lesson for wives in verses 7 through 9. Next, in verse 10, husbands, it's your turn, our turn. We have a, a, a lesson, if you will, for husbands. And we see this in Job's response. Verse 10 but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not, not receive evil? Adversity, uh, maybe a, a better translation. And all of this, uh, Job did not sin with his lips. And so we have a lesson for husbands. Lesson for husbands. Husbands, write this down. You only get one. The wife's got one. You probably need more than that, but we'll limit it to one. Here's the lesson for husbands. Always tell her the truth. Always tell her the truth, even if it hurts. Always tell her the truth, even if it hurts. Now, just, um, I don't want to get you in trouble, husbands, this afternoon or tonight or in the future. I'm not necessarily talking about the scenario when you're getting ready uh, for an evening out and your wife is fitting on a dress and she says, do I look fat in this (laughs) <laughs> that's not the kind of scenario I'm, uh, I'm, I'm addressing here, although I do suggest you speak truthfully in that matter. Um, I, I'm talking about situations here, situations in the book of Job, where faithfulness to God, faithfulness to the truth, where issues of integrity and walking with God are in question. These are the kind of things, I think, that Job gives us the advice. Um, always tell the truth, even with, when it hurts. Even when it hurts, Notice what Job calls her. Did you notice that? Husbands, you probably did. It probably bounced off the page at you. Notice what he said. Let's get back a little bit. He calls her foolish. He, he essentially calls her a Fool. You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Now, to us, that comes across as a little disrespectful. Uh, I don't think it was. Uh, The word fool here essentially refers to someone who is spiritually ignorant. He's not calling her dumb, he's not calling her stupid. He he's in in the Bible, a fool is one who doesn't have discernment. In in the Bible, a fool is one who understands and knows God's ways and God, God's commands, but disregards them. That is a fool in the Bible. He's not calling her dumb. He's not speaking disrespectfully, but you know what he is doing? He's telling her the truth. He's telling her the truth about her suggestion. He calls her a fool. In my mind's eye, this has to be difficult. I mean, we get the impression that he's been married to this woman for quite some time. Surely they had a decent relationship, although not without their spats. Surely I think they had a healthy relationship. Um, Husbands, if you would say something like this to your wives, is there a good chance you'd be sleeping on the couch that night? Probably so. For husbands, we look at that and we're like, "Ooh, would we go there? Would we say what Job said? I would suggest we need to follow Job's lead and tell her the truth, even when it hurts. There's a story in Leadership Magazine, and I've taken a bit of it. Leadership Magazine is a wonderful magazine, has bunches of true stories from different pastors and preachers. And I found one that I think uh, fits the bill here, and so I'd like to share it with you uh, from a leadership magazine. The, uh, the person who put the article in says this. When truth unmasks wrong, those who are exposed get very nervous, like the two brothers I heard in a story recently. Uh, these brothers were both rich. They were also both wicked. Both of them lived a wild and unprofitable existence, using their wealth to cover up the dark side of their lives. On the surface, however, few would have guessed it. They, uh, for these, uh, had consum- They were consummate cover-up artists. They attended the same church. Uh, they contributed large, mon- uh, large sums of money to various church-related projects. Then the church called a new pastor, a young man who preached the word with zeal and courage. Uh, but before long, attendance had grown up for so uh, in such a way that they required a larger worship service uh, area. Being a man of keen insight and strong integrity, this young pastor uh, had seen through the uh, the hypocritical lifestyle of these two brothers. Suddenly, one of the brothers died, and the young pastor was asked to preach his funeral. The day before his funeral, their surviving brother pulled the minister aside and handed him an envelope. There's a check-in there that's large enough to pay for the entire amount of the new sanctuary, he whispered. All I ask is one favor. Tell the people at the funeral that he was a saint. That he was a saint. The minister, as the story goes, gave the brother his word. He would do precisely what he had asked. That afternoon, he took, took the check in his pocket and deposited it in the church bank account. Well, the next day, uh, the young pastor at the funeral stood uh, before the casket of this brother and said, with firm conviction, and I'll quote him, This man was an ungodly sinner, wicked to the core, he was unfaithful to his wife, he was harsh on his children, he was ruthless in his business, and he was a hypocrite at church. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Job teaches us husbands that we should always tell the truth. We should always tell the truth, even when it hurts. And so men, I want to challenge you in particular I think you have an idea of the kind of thing I'm talking about. When there is an issue that is brought up in your relationship with your wife, you know that addressing it, you know that going there could cause some tension. You, know, you, knew, that, you knew that if you would just go there, that it wouldn't be smooth sailing, but it's an important issue. It's an issue that can't be brushed under the rug any longer. Husbands, speaking of myself, Are we willing to sacrifice the peace of our home? Are we willing to sacrifice uh, smooth sailings in the short term for speaking the truth? So I encourage you husbands and myself, tell the truth even when it hurts. Finally, in verses 11 through 13, we see lessons for friends. We have a couple lessons for friends here. What we see is the, the text transitions and we are introduced, as I mentioned before, to his three, really four, three friends. So let's read this again together. Now when Job's three friends heard of all of this evil that had come upon him, pay attention to the verbs. This is what they do. They came, each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. I did practice those, by the way. They made an appointment together to come and to show him sympathy and to comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. That gives us an indication that whatever disease he had deformed his face in such a way that he could not be recognized from afar. And they raised their voices. Notice what they do. They they raised their voices and they wept and they tore their robes and literally they, they flung up dust in the air as a symbol of their sympathy towards heaven. And then verse 13 And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights in total silence. No one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. There are many lessons for friends here, and I encourage you to go through it. But in the time remaining this morning, I've got a couple. So if you're taking notes, write the first one down. Lessons for friends, number one. First of all, friends care enough to come uninvited. Friends care enough to come uninvited. Uninvited. Notice that we don't see that Job called for the friends. Uh, Job does not send whatever servants he might have left to go to seek sympathy. They hear of his plight, and notice the verbs, they, they come together, they make an appointment together. There is intentionality, and they didn't wait to get a telegram from Job. They cared enough to come to him without any kind of invitation. You know, there is a, a, a British publication once uh, had a contest, and the contest was this. How do you define friendship? What is a definition of friendship? And there were thousands of entries, but the winning friend, uh, friendship definition was this. A friend is one who comes in. A friend is one who comes in when the whole world has gone out. I think that's really good, don't you? And this is exactly what Job's friends are doing. They get a lot of negative press, rightly so, but let's give them their due. They came to see him. Most likely, these men were rich, influential, just like Job. I mean, he probably hobnobbed with the rich and famous of his day. Uh, these men could take time off from their busy schedules and families and everything that they surely had going on, travel quite a bit ways away to spend a week with him. I mean, to spend a week with him. No day planner, no, um, you know, No schedule, no cell phone. They took a week away to come uninvited. For Job, the entire world had gone out. Even his wife had gone out. And yet his friends had come in. And so I want to encourage you as a friend, take the initiative, go visit. In particular, when your friend is hurting Suffering. Take the initiative. Secondly, friends not only care enough to come invited. uh, Friends know when to talk and when to shut their mouths. So if you're writing this down, this is the second lesson. Friends know when to talk and when to keep quiet. Verse 13. Let me read it one more time, and I hope it sinks in. They sat down on the ground with him seven days and seven nights. That's a week doing nothing. I mean, I can't do nothing for five minutes. Five minutes. I can't sit on the ground quiet for five minutes. Seven days? Seven nights? Silence. Sure, maybe they got up to move and use the restroom and eat, and, you know, Job probably, you know, there was some come and go. But they sat there with him for seven days, and they didn't say a word, and it says why. For they saw that his suffering was very great. Sometimes, sometimes when a person, your friend's suffering is so great... It demands that you just be quiet. It just, yeah, amen. It just demands that you be quiet. It demands that you shut your mouth and that you have a presence, a ministry of presence, a ministry of presence with them. Custom was in that day when you were visiting someone who was mourning, say at a funeral, you would sit with them and you would not say a word until the person who was mourning spoke up. You always reserved the right to speak first with your friends with the mourner to the person who is suffering. And they did it for 7 days. I mean 7 days. It just blows my mind. We see that Job does exactly this. In chapter 3, Job speaks first, just as the custom of the day, and he spoke, (laughs) and they spoke. But man, they knew when to talk, and they knew when to be silent. I want to share with you one concluding story. There's an author by the name of Joe Bailey. Um, He has written several books, and one of his books is called The View from the Hearse. The View from the Hearse. And he has had his fair... uh, fair amount of Job-like experiences. Um, I learned that he he had seven kids. Uh, Three of them were lost. Uh, One of them was lost at birth. Uh, He had uh, one that was lost at five due to a long battle with leukemia. He had lost another at the age of 18 in a freak sledding accident. And so he, uh, I think, is qualified to share this piece of advice in his book, the View from a Hearse, he says this. I'd like to read it at length. I was sitting, torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God and of God's dealings and of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things that I knew were true. I was unmoved, except that I wished he would just go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me an hour or more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, and left. He concludes by saying, I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. You know, had Job's friends continued to do exactly what they were doing, had they continued to keep silent even after he had spoken? he would have said the same thing of them. He would have hated to see them go. But as we all know, they spoke up, and in the end, I think he probably hated to see them stay. (laughs) Um, And we'll get into that in the upcoming weeks. And so we've seen a couple, uh, three lessons. Lesson for wives. Lesson for wives. Always and never. Always guard your words. Never suggest compromise. Husbands, always tell her the truth, even when it hurts. Friends, care enough to come even when you're uninvited and know when to talk because there is time for talking and know when to be quiet. We're going to end our service this morning the way we did a couple weeks ago. I've asked Martha, uh, I don't know if she's here yet, but we're going to get her. I've asked Martha to read a bit of a book entitled Job, Simply Job. Uh, it's It's a poetical rendering from the creative and theologically brilliant mind of pastor john piper Uh, and so the illustrations will be up on the screen here in a minute and martha is going to read uh, the story of how john piper sees this scene fleshing out i hope it puts some flesh and bone and helps us to enter in to the scenario here and so uh, as we wait for martha to do that we're going to pray and we're going to end our service that way so would you pray with me Father, thank you that your word is so practical to us. Thank you that you reserve for us that which is holy and true and right and perfect. Father, thanks that it's so real, uh, that it's not pristine and above us, but you record for us the, the life and the dealings of your saints who are very much like us, who sit in the ash heap and the, and the dust of, of suffering and trial, who question and who struggle with the whys and the hows of life, who struggle with your sovereignty and maintain their integrity and their faith and their trust in you. Thank you so much for this wonderful story of Job. Father, thank you for negative examples and positive examples. Thanks for the negative example of Job's wife and that which we can learn from her. Thank you for Job and his response and the challenge that that is to us husbands. And Father, thank you even for these three friends who will get their bad press, but thank you for the wonderful example that they set of friendship to us. Would you give us great wisdom and discernment to know when to come and when to stay, when to talk and when to be quiet. We want to be good friends. So we ask that you would uh, bless the reading now and that you would help us to go uh, full of integrity and faithfulness. And we ask it in Christ's name.
1: Some days the swelling pinched his eyes shut so he couldn't see the flies that gorged their smooth black bellies in the putrid pus that seeped like the thin and yellow sap from crimson bark built up with dreadful days of dark and drying blood. Only his wife dared touch his cloak, and with a knife relieve at times some throbbing boil, and with her own bare hands pour oil on his malignant neck and smooth it down along his back to soothe his pain. As days and weeks went by, the quiet news that Job might die spread down to Teman and the clan of Eliphaz the wise, and ran its course along the western way among the Arab tribes, who say their father was the ancient chief named Shuha known for Proverbs, brief and penetrating to the soul, where Bildad had his school and stole the hearts of all the Shuhite men. The news went northward, too, and when it reached the town of Tadamor, the old man Zophar wept and wore his grieving robe as he set out to meet with Bildad on the route from Babylon and then connect with Eliphaz all three bedecked for burying their friend if they should come in time. Eight weeks, one day and seven painful hours had passed since Job was struck. How can I last, he often thought? How can I take one hour more and not forsake my God? One afternoon, Job raised his pinched and swollen eyes and praised his God because he saw three friends. Job said, Oh, how your coming lends new strength to this old rotten corpse. T'was you, Bildad, who said, It warps the mind to let it soak too long in solitude. Behold, no throng among the mighty Job, well bent, as you would say, and had been spent and broken too, in twain between the loss and pain, but for my queen, my servant queen, and mirror of my God. But I do need and love your coming. Sit, do not touch this corpse. One only loves so much as that. Through seven days they sat and wept with Job, so broken that they could not speak. Job felt the power of silent love, and every hour was like a gift.